How hard is it for those without a church background to come to faith? When you look around the world among us and around us, and we look at people that haven't grown up in the church, and they, they, they don't seem to have a, a trust and a, a belief in God, how hard is it for them to develop faith? Is it possible? How easy do we make it for them? In Scripture, we read of different stories of faith. And we've talked about the faith of Moses and the faith of Noah. But this morning, we look at the faith of Rahab, a woman who grew up in a culture and a place that did not know God, that did not have a background of knowing God. And yet she displayed great faith. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's start by looking in Hebrews chapter 11. We want to look at this great chapter of the stories of faith and notice what it says about Rahab. But really what we want to do this morning <clears throat> is think about her interaction with the spies that Joshua sends out. We want to think about her obedience that she displays. And then we want to think about the faith of the faithless. So notice some things with me. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 30. The Hebrew writer tells us, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. The Hebrew writer begins by telling us, or at least suggesting to us, that there was something different about Rahab in terms of her obedience. There's a contrast between Rahab who acted in faith and those who were disobedient. The disobedient, I suppose, of Jericho. But how did Rahab act in faith? How did she act in obedience that was different than, than those of Jericho? And we see that with her interaction with the spies. So we turn in our scriptures back in the Old Testament to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. As Joshua is about to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and begin the conquest of Canaan, the first place they encounter is Jericho as they enter Canaan. But they don't just go in running and gunning. Joshua decides to send in spies to find out what the land is like, what Jericho is like. Notice what the text says, Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. He was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman said, But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about, when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order 
on the roof. So the man pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. As we begin by looking at this story, the first thing that we notice is that Rahab probably not the best character. She's described in her occupation as being a harlot. Now, depending on which scholar you read, there's a debate uh, about exactly what does that mean. Because the Hebrew root stem here uh, is somewhat related to the same word for innkeeper. And so some people say, well, maybe she wasn't really a harlot. Maybe she was just an innkeeper. And so that's why these spies went there. Because after all, these are supposed to be men of God, right? What are they doing going to the home of a harlot? So right away, we're confronted with a, a discrepancy in our minds of what it is to be a godly person. These guys are supposed to be serving Israel. They're supposed to be serving God. And yet, here they are. So some people say, well, maybe she really was an innkeeper. And there's some evidence to support that. But you have two big problems. One is the scripture we already read in Hebrews, chapter 11, that describes her in the Greek as being a prostitute. But also James, in James chapter 2, also talks about Rahab and uses the Greek word for prostitute. And the reason that's important is because there's no possible counterinterpretation. Uh, the word porne is the Greek word for prostitute, and we see the connection to with some of our modern language words. And so there's no doubt that that's what she did. Now, the reality is, in antiquity, oftentimes motels and places of harlotry were the same place. You didn't drive up and stay at Motel 6. Tom Bodette was not there. He was not leaving the light on for you. Right? So you either slept in a stranger's house or maybe there was an inn, but oftentimes that's what the business in the inn was also doing. And so here come these two spies. They want to fit in. They want to uh, mingle. They want to uh, seem like they're just passing through town, I suppose. And so they do what most other folks do, and that's where they went, perhaps. Nobody knows. Joshua doesn't go into great detail for us as to why they chose that place. But that's where they were. And here is Rahab, someone who serves her life in that occupation. Not probably the highest upstanding individual in that community. Even though uh, that behavior was widely accepted in antiquity, still those weren't your people that were considered the upper echelons of society. And so that's who she is. Now what I want you to notice is in this story, at the beginning of this story, she hasn't really had much interaction with the men. She hasn't made a deal with them. She hasn't said, I'm going to provide you for, with protection. She just does it. The king of the city, it's a city-state, not a great king, like you might think of the kings of England or the kings of France or the kings of some great empire, but... They were city-states, and each city-state had their own king. And so the king of the city hears that these spies have been looking around, and they're in their town, and that they found their way to the harlot's house. And so he sends and asks, send the men out. She goes, oh, you're right. They did come here, but they've already left. If you catch them, if you go after them now, you might catch them. But again we really haven't seen much interaction between Rahab and the men. They haven't made a deal with her. 
We don't know why she's doing this. But she hides the men up on her roof under the stalks of flax. And this was a nasty, nasty smelling business because flax was what was used to make rope. Uh, it was sometimes used to make linen. Uh, but they would take this particular plant and they would cut it into strips and then they would soak it in water so it would begin to soften and, and quite frankly, start to rot. And then they would dry it out and they could use it, use the fibers that were good to make the rope or make their linen. In other words, she step, step, put them in a bunch of rotting grass. Would you like to hide out in a bunch of rotting grass? That's essentially what's going on here. But she hides them there and they stay there until these men from the king have left. And then she begins to interact with them. Notice what it says, verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Before we get to the response of the men, there's a couple things I want you to notice here. Probably in most of your English translations, look at that word, Lord. Do you notice how the editors of your, I don't want to say the editors, but the publishers of your Bible, do you notice how they, they put Lord in all capital letters? It's because when we translated this into English, they took the actual name of God, which transliterated in English is Y-H-W-H. Nobody knows how to say it because the Jews considered that name of God so holy that you couldn't speak it. So it's a Jewish word that translators can identify, but they just don't know how to pronounce it. So some people pronounce it Jehovah. Some people pronounce it Yahweh. But you see, she is calling the name of God by his Hebrew name, Yahweh. We've heard what Yahweh has done for you. What you've done to those other kings. How the nations have melted away before you. She is calling on the name of Yahweh. Not some ambiguous God, not some ambiguous spiritual being, but she's calling on Yahweh. And she says, you know, we've noticed something different about this Yahweh that you worship. We've noticed that he is the God of both the heavens and the earth. 
And the pagans of antiquity, they were big into gods. They were polytheistic. You had gods of the sun. You had gods of the earth. You had gods of the grain. You had gods of, uh, of cattle. You had gods of the sea. You had gods of the sky. And you had gods for every little thing. And they all controlled their little segment of the cosmos in the thinking of the pagans of antiquity. And what she is articulating is that there is something different about Yahweh. He controls everything. Who can stand before him? Did you notice her analysis of her city? Everyone's heart has melted. No man has any bravery in him. No man has any courage in him. They've all melted away. They don't want anything to do with you guys because of what Yahweh has allowed you to do. You see, Rahab was different from everyone else in Jericho in the sense that she saw what God could do. She saw the power of God. And whether she automatically became a monotheistic person or whether she just acknowledged the power of God, but one way or the other, she is different from everyone else in Jericho because she sees the power of God and she says, I'm with him. Or I at least acknowledge his power to save my life. Everyone else in Jericho did not. Already says they don't want to fight. But they're going to hold up inside their city behind the, the walls of, uh, of Jericho. At least see what happens. But she was the only one to acknowledge the power of God. And so when these two spies come to her house, she says, I, I'm not going to give these guys up. Are you crazy? Have you seen what their God can do? I'm going to do everything I can to protect them. This woman, who is a harlot and apparently a very convincing liar, because she lies all the way through the story, doesn't she? She lies to the king. She hides these men up on her roof. She, she completes a, a couple different forms of deception. She's not the best individual. And yet, she is someone who is gaining a faith in God. She at least at this point acknowledges who God is and, and, and His power to save. And so she makes this agreement with the men. And I don't know why these men agreed to this. Did Joshua tell them that God has empowered you to make an agreement on my behalf? Isn't that interesting? If these men were men who had gone to have a good time in Jericho with, with this harlot, it seems odd to me that God would honor the promise that they make to her. But they make a promise. Notice this, verse 14. So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So the first promise they make to her is, look, if you deal kindly with us and you protect us, then we're going to deal kindly with you. 
But notice this language. If you do not tell this business of ours, you're going to see this phrase repeated and a similar phrase uh, also used throughout this chapter as they talk with her. Uh, these men seem to be a little bit concerned maybe of Rahab's honesty. Uh, they seem to be a little bit concerned that, that maybe she's going to turn them in or, or maybe she's not going to fulfill her end of the promise. Notice verse 14. Again, tell this business of ours. Look at verse 18. Unless when we come into this land you tie this cord of scarlet thread to the window, would you let us down and gather your yourself into the house, your father and your mother, your brothers and all your household? It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. A little bit of, of, of vacillating there. Okay, you've got to do this. Verse 17, we shall be free from this oath which you made us swear unless you have this thread there. Maybe a little bit of vacillating on the promise. Again, a little bit later in the text, verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free of the oath. So there's a little bit of hesitancy on their part, I suppose, to make this promise. Maybe they get to go back and they go, they go to tell Joshua, hey, Joshua, we made this great deal with this prostitute that we ran into while we were in Jericho. Now, how did that conversation go? You know? Uh, were these married men? How did that conversation go, right? But nonetheless, there's a little bit of hesitancy on their part. I don't know why, but it's there in the text. Maybe they didn't think that she would follow through. Maybe they thought maybe she didn't really believe. Maybe they were concerned that she was just putting them into some sort of trap. But for whatever reason, three times they warn her, this will be the deal as long as you do your part. But she does her part. She follows through on what they tell her to do. Now, there's something else that's interesting here as we look at the story. And this is, she's just not looking out for herself. She says, I want my entire, father, my entire father's house. I, I want my brothers and my sisters and everything that belongs to them. Maybe that's part of their concern that she's going to tell their business. Because how do you get everyone in your family? Hey, I had some spies over and they said that our city's going to be destroyed. But if you hang out here, everything's going to be okay. Is that not going to spread very quickly? I mean, how does that go? And would you take all your brothers with you? Some of the little siblings in the room? I mean, uh, that shows your brotherly love, right? Your family commitment. She's concerned about her family. And so they say, yes, all your family will be cared for as long as you do these things. Now notice Rahab's obedience. Turn over a couple chapters, a few four chapters to be precise, to chapter 6. And you know the story. For seven days, the Israelites march around the city of Jericho, one time each day until they get to that seventh day. And then on that seventh day, they march around seven times, and then Joshua tells the priest to blow the horn and everyone uh, to shout. And they all do that, and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. But then look at verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all they had. 
They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. So she went a little bit beyond uh, the, the brothers uh, and her parents. But all her relatives, I mean, she had that house crammed, I guess. But you see, she obeyed. She acted in faith. Verse 24, they burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver, the gold, the articles of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Rahab, however, the harlot in her father's household, and all she had, Joshua spared, and she lived in the midst of Israel to this day, the day that Joshua was written. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She was faithful to the promise. She acted in faith. Now remember, what is faith? We go back in our minds to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. She was hoping for her life, folks. She was hoping for the life of her family. She did everything she could to save her family had them all crammed into that house. But she also acted with conviction. She didn't know what was going to happen, but she had a pretty good idea what was going to happen. Because she said, we have all seen the power of Yahweh, and our hearts have melted away. She was convicted that this God would destroy the city. And she alone trusted and acted in faith in seeking God. This woman who's a prostitute, this woman who was good at deception, God awarded for her faith. And so this is her obedience. Remember what the Hebrew writer says in that great chapter in Hebrews 11, verse 8. That he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a re the rewarder of those who seek him. If somebody wants to come to God, they must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And isn't that what Rahab did? She acknowledged his existence. She believed that he is and that he could reward her. She acted before she talked with those spies and said, those men aren't here. She acted because she knew what Yahweh could do and would do. Folks, she had faith. This person whom we might say was faithless. Until this time, she had no idea who God was, I suspect. She lived in a pagan culture, in a pagan city. She carried out ungodly practices. But do you know who this woman is? Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. One of the patriarchs, one of those men in the genealogies of Jesus, gave birth... Was, uh, fathered a son named Boaz, who fathered a son named Obed, who fathered a son named J 
Jesse, who fathered a son named David, on down until Jesus is born. But Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 says that Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. This woman who was faithless in our eyes, ungodly in our eyes, was one of the women in the genealogy of Jesus and of David and of Solomon and of many great kings of Israel. Because she acted in faith, God certainly did reward her. How do we treat the faithless today? How do we cultivate the faith of the faithless around us? Are we wrong to automatically assume that those living in the culture around us who are not Christians are not interested in God? I mean, don't we just kind of automatically assume that many times? Oh, that person, look at how they're living their life. They don't want to hear about God. Oh, look about that, that person over there. Look how they're dressed. Look what their body looks like. Look at the rings in their ear or in their nose or nowadays just about anywhere. Ah, uh, that person doesn't really care about God. Look at that person. That person's a millennial. They definitely don't care about God. And sometimes we allow that assumption to build in our mind so deeply that we think, probably shouldn't even waste our time reaching out to that person. Shouldn't even spend our time uh, trying to reach those folks. They're not interested anyway. Now, I don't think any of us would go around and say that to one another. Oh, we're not going to go over there. Those, those, those folks don't care anyway. But sometimes it's so automatic and so in the background of our thinking that maybe we do that and we don't even mean to. But how many of us, if we had been in Jericho on that day and we had considered the entire population of that city, would have thought, oh, yeah, the prostitute. Yeah, she's the one that we ought to go to. Probably most of us wouldn't have made that choice. We'd have gone to somebody else. What did it take to persuade Rahab to follow God? She had heard of God's work for Israel. She knew God's name. She recognized that the city residents, their hearts had melted, and seemingly only Rahab sought God. You see, it's a choice when we see the power of God. Either we go after Him and seek Him, or we turn from Him. And we can't know who's going to turn towards him and who's going to turn away from him. Our job is simply to say the name of Christ, the name of God, and let him use us to reach those who would turn toward him. The world needs to witness the power of God in our lives. We need to talk about the blessings that we have as coming from God. Instead of falling into the language and, and, and the, the ways of talking in which we say, oh, you're lucky, or oh, you know, just this, this strange thing happened to me. Instead of acknowledging, hey, my house, my home, my job, my clothes, my food, my everything is because God. When we talk to our children, you may not believe it, but Joseph did not want to come to church this morning. 
And I said, Joseph, God gave Daddy the ability to buy this house. God gave Daddy the ability to give you food. God, that's good timing. God gave Daddy the ability to let you have clothes and Paw Patrol shoes that light up. That's why we worship God. We need to share those things with our kids. And sometimes we forget that little thing that we do can help kids see faith. The world around us needs to see our changed behavior. People mock Christians because they say, oh, you're a Christian, yet you're over here doing all these things over here. Now, part of that is you can't just get away saying everyone's a hypocrite. But by the same token, if you're a Christian, you need to think about what Paul says. Shall we continue in sin so grace may abound? May it never be. The world needs to see the power of God to change lives. Because the power of God changed the life of a woman that was a liar and a harlot and made her a grandmother of the Savior of the world. Maybe you're here this morning and your life needs to be changed. Maybe you're here this morning and you've made that you want to become united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism and to live your life for God. And if that's your need or if you have some other need, whatever your need, won't you come? Together we stand and sing.